Radio Land, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. Ahoy! My name is Lori Weiner, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Tom Lutz. Hi, Tom. Hello, Lori. Today, we will be talking to Janice Littlejohn, who is Senior Editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books, a fine publication, and is here to talk to us about her new documentary, uh, about female jazz musicians. And about Rumi. Rumi. Yeah, not as a description of a place. Right. But as the Persian poet. Oh, right. There is a new film being made about him, and Janice is going to talk about the problems with that film. That sounds fascinating. I think I was there. Also, we will be joined by Evan Kindley, a senior editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. He teaches at Claremont McKenna College, and he has written the new book, Questionnaire, part of the Object Lesson series from Bloomsbury. We will explain all. We are here with Janice Littlejohn, who we're very excited about because she just recently joined the LA Review of Books as a senior editor. She's also the co-author of Swirling, How to Date, Mate, and Relate, Mixing Race, Culture, and Creed, put out by Simon & Schuster. And she's written for many, many publications and websites. Welcome, Janice. Thank you. You're a senior editor. What kinds of pieces are you looking at? Well, I look... Primarily at nonfiction stories, books, I explore women's issues, issues regarding race and culture, and media and entertainment. Because you're, you're in that world as well. I'm in that world, and it's very strange after covering entertainment and media as a journalist for almost 40 years. <laughs> it's kind of interesting now to be a filmmaker and, and working on the other side of the spectrum and getting to learn that perspective firsthand. So some of the pieces that you've done for us have been, like, for instance, an interview with a jazz singer Mm -hmm. have been related to the film project that you're working on. Yes. Tell us about the film project. Yes, I'm working on a documentary film called But Can She Play? And it's blowing the roof off women and jazz. And it explores some of the still gender stereotypes and biases about women who play trumpet, trombone, and saxophone. And so I'm looking at women who are like Grace Kelly, who is now on the Stephen Colbert show, and Tia Fuller, and other women who are really breaking down the doors of the boys club in jazz. So, uh, And why those three instruments? Um, because they still have very interesting stereotypes attached to them. There seems to be a very phallic symbolism in women who play horns, and lots of people who don't believe that women have the power the physical power to play horns like men do. And my conceit is that we don't have to play like men. We can play like girls and still be fine. And so so it it was an interesting project that I started as a graduate student at USC for my thesis project that then branched out into a documentary project. And I just remember watching Prince's bass player at one of his concerts, uh, this woman who... All of his musicians, of course, were always mm-hmm. fantastic. But she had this, she would do this thing where she would just kind of almost lay down on the stage. I mean, part of the thing about his band yeah. is that they always managed to look incredibly relaxed. Right. It was hard driving funk, but it was always, there was a real premium place on being cool. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Prince because Candy Dolfer was his saxophonist for many years. Uh-huh. And she went on to have her own solo career and is doing really well. And the thing that is interesting to me about Prince is that he respected musicians, period. It didn't matter whether they were male or female, black or white, or what have you. He respected the musician, and he encouraged women as a part of his band. And he was, as we look back at his career, you can see in every layer of his career, in every incarnation of his band, there were always women involved. And so one mm-hmm. of the things that was interesting about Candy for me is that when her first album broke— she had a little uh, riff in there where a guy says, oh, I know she looks good, but can she play? Uh-huh. And I found that that storyline with many other women, 
there was always that caveat. Well, I know she's so-and-so's niece, but can she play? Oh, well, I know she went to Berkeley, but can she really play? And so it was a through line. And it's interesting that you bring up Prince because kind of inadvertently, he's responsible for so many influences that I've had in music and having a chance to meet and interview Candy and then do this documentary. It's it's. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's really interesting. interesting. <laughs> and you look back at uh, you know some of the other great band leaders. I mean, they're all. It's not quite fair because they're all a generation older. I mean, mm-hmm. Miles or uh, James Brown, or, mm-hmm. right? Not a lot of women. Yeah, but Sly and the Family Stone had an excellent trumpet player who was oh, am- right. amazing. Yes, right. and so you know, and when we look at music and we talk about music, Lil Harden Armstrong, who was uh, Louis Armstrong's second wife, mm-hmm. is really responsible for us knowing who Louie is. She was the one that composed and put together the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens. Oh, um, And all these things that we remember Louis Armstrong for, she was largely responsible for that and getting him out into the forefront and taking him out of the bandstand and putting him as a band leader. So Uh, women have been involved with jazz and with music and instrumentalists and composing for as long as we've been having music. (laughs) And so I think it's really important that the stories of women be told because men's stories still tend to permeate the history and the discussion of of what music, whether it be jazz, rock, or otherwise, is. Semi-related question. Did you, Mm -hmm. by any chance, see um, Audra McDonald do her one-woman show on Billie Holiday? Yes. Wasn't that... It was amazing. So astonishing. It was just fantastic. I saw a screening of it at the Pan-African Film Festival in February, and it was just phenomenal. She's just such an outstanding performer, but the way that she embodied Billie Holiday in such highs and lows in that one club scene. That's why she's got an Emmy nomination. <laughs> it, it was incredible because it was like you could watch concert footage of Billie Holiday and you wouldn't understand her as well as you did. I mean, she was it was subtext and text all at mm-hmm. once. And, and it was her, you know, reading of what the life was like with a very great understanding and empathy. And on top of that, like Audra's voice is you know, octaves and octaves. And Billie Holiday is a much smaller range. Mm -hmm. So it was like watching, you know, Babe Ruth, like, I don't know. It was just something with a, about with the a whipple power. Ball bat or <laughs> yeah, it was. Just, no, that's not to no, that's not it. to denigrate Billy Holly because right. he was uh, obviously an incredible artist. But um, it was there was just something about her understanding of the life, her mm-hmm. reading of the life, her legacy from that life, her right. gratitude. I right. mean, it was just it was astounding. Right. Yeah. We wanted to talk to you, too, about not just your film and not just the <laughs> the uh, things that you're uh, doing as an editor for LARB, but the couple of pieces that you've written lately okay. uh, for LARB as well, both of which have to do with race and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And the first was about a film about the Persian poet, the Persian poet Rumi. Yes. You'd been working on a version of a Rumi project for a while. Well, Rumi has inspired the title of my scripted narrative Lovers in Their Right Mind. It was a poem that he wrote that was translated. And so Rumi's very close to me because when I started studying Persian culture and Persian literature, he was it. And that was three years ago. And subsequently, I read in The Guardian about a film that was being worked on in Hollywood and the producer and writer had in mind Leonardo DiCaprio to play Rumi, who is a Persian Muslim scholar. And which makes perfect sense. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I think my first reaction was, how dare they? But being in film and, and having to push a project that I'm working on that is a black and Persian love story and knowing the kinds of challenges that it takes to launch something with people of color predominantly because there's only one white character in my film project. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand those kinds of challenges. I know that they're looking for bottom line. They're looking for stars. But I also felt like it was time to challenge Hollywood to step outside of their box because we're dealing now with a global cinematic audience. Yeah, And I felt that a 
Persian Muslim actor could bring real depth to the project. And now having worked with, as a production partner, Navid Nagavan, I thought, why not Navid? <laughs> so uh, so that was what prompted it. And Navid, people would know because... It, uh, he was Abu Nazir in Showtime's Homeland. The thing that resonates with me, not only with Navid as a friend and as a production partner... But he is an actor of incredible range and strength and empathy. And the reason why people loved him so much is Abu Nazir. He was just a, a minor character, but that character took off because of what he embodied and brought to it. It was a, a level of sympathy and a level of, I hate that guy, but yet I love that guy. Yeah. That he brings to almost every character that True he plays. Yeah. Yes, he brings yeah. a, a very strong range. And he can bring that. He can bring that to Rumi because he is Rumi. He comes from that place. He comes from that sensibility as a young person growing up in Iran. That's a part of the literature that they study. And that's a part of the history that he comes from. Part of your point in your piece mm -hmm. was that Hollywood, its reasons mm -hmm. obviously have to do with money. Sure. And of course, they want to list stars because they want to make their money. But your point is that you can make money casting the actors who actually might connect with the role better. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that it, financial issues, that's becoming more and more of a lame excuse. Right. But also, I just wanted to ask you a related issue. I have a, a friend whose daughter is a very talented young actress, just 16 years old, and mm -hmm. she's at that performing arts school downtown. But the kids are really, really sensitive to these issues, so sensitive that they feel like no white kid should play a black character's role, but they don't go the other way, which I think is great that they're so, so sensitive to it. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like we're in a stage of overcorrection right now. And because the whole art of acting and fiction and imagination mm -hmm. is that you get to enter these other realities. And I think to kind of dictate who can play what, even though I totally get it. I'm just wondering if, if we're in a stage of overcorrection because of how ridiculous it's been on the other end. I think the real point is, and Asif Manvi said this recently at a SAG presentation, we don't get to play those other roles. So there aren't opportunities for people of color to play certain characters and white people get to play all the heroes. Right. And it does leave an imbalance of who we are as a culture, who we are as a society. And if the aim as the producers of this particular project state that they want to give a different perspective and understanding on who Muslim people are. Right. And you're using white people? Right. I completely I, I want to know what what's your evidence beyond that Julia, young people are that, sensitive no, about that, this? That, that there's an overcorrection going on. I mean, they, oh, I because mean, like, like okay. what, what film can you point to? Can, well, okay, well see, I'm a, more of a theater. I'm a theater person, okay. right? And obviously some of the the reason that Hamilton is is so such an ecstatic experience. Mm -hmm. And so like it's just mind-blowing, you know, and and what he's saying is, you know, we, yes, we are part of the founding of this country. We're going to, you know, represent here. And I think that that's incredibly exciting. Right. You know, I remember Audrey McDonald being cast in Carousel in 92 mm -hmm. when that was still, people were still discussing whether that was right or not, mm -hmm. which was already an antiquated discussion in 92. It was mm -hmm. ridiculous. But I also think when you're talking about art and acting, you are talking about imagining another person's life. I mean, I just think that's always going to be a part of the mix and part of the question. Well, I think the, the important part is that we have to include everyone. And so if we can't even be included in our own stories, then that's sure. where the issue lies. Right. You know, we there's Beaches is being remade and Nia Long, I believe, is being considered. They've redone Steel Magnolias with an African-American cast. Those things are exciting. Hamilton, I used as an example. Mm -hmm. But we don't mistake Hamilton or, or the Founding Fathers as people of color. That's not the throwback. Right. But to have a Leonardo DiCaprio portraying someone who is of a different ethnic and cultural background, it flies in the face of who we need to be including into these conversations and who we need to see represented as part of the cultural zeitgeist and discussion of, of who these people are. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you make clear in the piece is that 
because one of the justifications, one of the kind of reasons to do this mm -hmm. film, a film about Rumi, is precisely to kind of open the world up for right. people in ways that has not been opened up before. Right. And Leonardo DiCaprio is probably not the right person to do that. And right. I, I, I get that. And what you were saying earlier is that Navid's having grown up there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I visited Iran a few years ago and to watch people at the tomb of Hafez kind of touching the grave, mm -hmm. sepulcher on top of the ground, touching the grave and weeping and reciting his poetry. Everybody that I met was either an engineer or a poet or both. Mm -hmm. Poetry and the poetic sensibility and a kind of tragic or from a Western perspective, hyper-emotional mm -hmm. relation to poetry mm -hmm. is so deep in the culture that it makes sense to me that, that Navid would, would bring something from growing I, I up with I just would like that. to go on record as saying I am not for DiCaprio playing this role. I think that's... I think no, that's, I I, that's, that's what I heard you saying. No. <laughs> but no. I think, I think overcorrecting, we haven't really overcorrected anything yet i agree we if we're still talking about the fact that a man of persian muslim descent should play a person of persian muslim descent right. instead of a white man that's not overcorrecting. that's just including right. him now into the discussion because we haven't gotten there yet we mm -hmm. still have as i pointed out in the story we still have films where white people caucasian people are playing cultures that are not themselves and People in Hollywood say, well, that's okay because they have a name. And what I'm arguing or asserting in the piece is that we all have to be included. We all have to be represented in our stories. I think the important part of the discussion that I would like to have about representation, about diversity, about inclusion, is that we all need to be a part of the storytelling. We need to be a part of the writing. We need to be a part of the on-screen representation. And in that, I think that is what audiences are looking for. They're looking for unique stories and wonderful experiences and new. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that is relevant about Hamilton was that was a unique story, a unique face on a story, and the kinds of perspectives that we don't often see. And so, there is value and there is money to be made if Hollywood would be brave mm -hmm. and open themselves up to something yeah. different. And what you're saying is it's not even a, a question of bravery because the excuses that they hide behind really are no longer even relevant. Right. So it doesn't even take bravery. It just takes kind of common sense. It takes common sense, but it does take some studio and it does take some executive to stand up and say, this is how I'm going to do this project. Because when you look at a film like the one that I'm doing, the protagonists are both African-American and Iranian-American. And the first thing I hear is, let's put Halle Berry in this. Mm -hmm. And while Halle Berry is a fine actress, having a woman who is biracial to play a woman who is having issues with being in a biracial relationship... Mm -hmm. seems a little odd and off-putting. So it's about challenging our narratives and challenging our executives to look at the storytellers and those who want to play in those stories and be true to it. It's about truth and storytelling. And then the next piece that you wrote about a month later was on a question of mixed race, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, well, it was uh, spurred by an incident. An actor named Jesse Williams was accepting a BET award. Mm -hmm. And what was it that he said when he accepted the award? Well, Jesse was challenging the appropriation of culture, of African-American culture, of blackness in our music, in our art, and in our television. And it was really a challenge for people to step up. And was it not also about policing as well? It was about policing, but, you know, a lot of it was about treating us as human. We are human. We purport that we are magic, but the fact that we're magic does not mean we are not human. And it spurred a lot of conversation. Some that was, Jesse Williams should not be saying this. This is racist. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but there were also discussions that because Jesse Williams is biracial, 
that somehow he can't speak to the Black experience or he cannot speak to Blackness in a way that a person of that is monoracial, I guess uh, you could say, should or could speak to those issues. And Shannon Luter's manual wrote a piece for the establishment discussing the lines and the blurred lines between the understanding of oppression and the oppressed and who is the oppressor and who is the oppressed and biracial people kind of living in both of those worlds. And I guess because I've been steeped in and looking at and exploring mixed race culture and mixed race romances and interracial and intercultural things, I really wanted to explore what that is. What does it mean to be biracial and to understand both sides of the spectrum. Mm. And so I presented this one question to three activists, writers, and artists about do biracial people have a perspective to see from the oppressed and the oppressor? Mm. And that kind of launched into a, a broadening of that discussion on LARB's website. And Heidi Duro, who was um, one of the people that you talked to, I love the way she started, which was, I'm not sure what the question is. Yeah. But I've got this to say about various kinds of answers, right? Which is a, a great kind of rhetorical strategy. You know, and it's interesting because it was one question that had so many layers to it. And I think as a woman who considers herself Black, it's what's on my birth certificate. But it's also my parents are four years apart and they were Negro and colored on their mm -hmm. birth certificates. And now my nieces and nephews are African-American. I come from Scottish and English and Irish heritage, but that part of the discussion is never entered into because both of my parents are quote-unquote black. And so it was really for me an opportunity to start new conversations and explore things because most of us, most of us are of mixed race and of mixed culture. And so people who have parents who are directly biracial that are either of a different race or different culture I thought it was an interesting opportunity to get a chance to talk about this as we look at race in America and how we are evolving and how we are identifying ourselves and who gets to be a part of what conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I think Heidi's point was really valid because, you know, she comes from Dutch and Black and she has a different cultural perspective and not only just racial. And so I think when we talk about interracial and intercultural and interfaith, we have to start talking broadly when we look at mixed people because not everybody's experiences are black and white. And I think too often our discussions start with black and white. I think it's a very interesting history too, because, mm -hmm. I, you know, I come to some of these questions through uh, this long period of uh, studying you know, the late 19th century through the 1920s. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Harlem Renaissance mm -hmm. writers are an mm -hmm. important part of mm -hmm. my scholarly life. And so a kind of very oversimplified history is in the 20s, there's a large-scale conversation about all of these issues going on. Not just mixed-race issues, which are paramount. I mean, there's a, a million novels of passing, for instance, right? But also... West Indian, why why West Indians don't really understand what it means to be black in America, mm -hmm. for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all of those conversations are are going full steam mm -hmm. in the twenties. And at some point in the sixties, a kind of um black solidarity overtook those conversations mm -hmm. and said, No, we are we are black. And that's the important political moment. Mm -hmm. Do you see this partly as a kind of a movement now? beyond that political moment to the next one? It's interesting because I think that there are certain social movements and changes that band us together in our blackness, if you will. And I think we're coming to a new movement with Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and the idea that we're all in this together because we're all profiled the same. And so, yeah, I do think that it's an interesting time that we're revisiting from the 60s and the Black and I'm Proud to bring us all together in a discussion because people who are mixed race are still people of color. Black people are still people of color. So 
they do have a very vested interest and a very concerned, insightful vantage of what it's like to be a person of color and sometimes a person of privilege because of their light skin. And I think these are conversations that we need to have as Black people, as Americans, because we have to start moving away from that brown paper bag rule (laughs) where one drop of Black blood makes you Black or the color of your skin compared to a paper bag makes you Black or light or whatever. I think having people of mixed race included in the conversations of Blackness are important because they've always been there. They've always been there. Speaking of mixed race, is anyone in pre-mourning about Obama leaving office? Me. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I've already got the tissues out. (laughs) Yeah, so... Talk about that in terms of... You know, I think it's really interesting in talking about Obama. He is truly an African-American. He is both biracial and bicultural. And it was really disheartening during his first run to hear people comment about the fact that he hates white people. His mother is white. His grandparents raised him. Glenn Beck, as I recall, among other people. But, I, you know, I would hear average citizens interviewed on NPR talking about how he hates white people. And I think that because we have embraced him as our first black president, it's kind of skewed the picture a little bit because I think one of the things that makes Obama such a great president and such a wonderfully worldly president, global president for our times, is because he's had this dual identity of being both Black and both African and white, having traveled and lived in other countries during his upbringing, having an atypical kind of Black experience that would be different from if he were raised on the south side of Chicago instead of migrating there after he graduated college. I think that's what the conversations when we talk about Obama is missing. He is our Black president because he identifies as Black and we respect him because he's Black and because Michelle is Black, you know, and and there's all that that goes into it because, Mm -hmm. you know, some have said, would he have gotten elected if Michelle was maybe fair-skinned or white? And so the, the conversations that we have around Obama are really interesting, but haven't even touched the surface of what his presidency really meant as a man of color. And so I think as we see him leave, sadly, (laughs) very soon, I think when conservatives or GOP pundits or whatever accuse him of playing the race card, it's because we still haven't dealt with the race card. Mm -hmm. We haven't dealt with it and what that means in this culture. Nobody's yet apologized for slavery. Nobody's talked about the ills that slavery continues to perpetuate and the kinds of racial pools that we've had because of slavery and because of our disdain for people of dark skin or light skin. So I do feel that His being a man of color has been important to the culture. If we can start talking about these conversations in a different way, opening them up to who he really is as an African, as an American, and what that means to us as we move forward. I look forward to that uh, discussion. uh, He is also, among other things, our first intellectual as president. Possibly. And I think yeah. that I think that kind of being black, being being a person of color made it safe for him to be an intellectual. You know, and it's interesting because I I remember I think it was Radar magazine when Obama was running in 2008, they had a cover story about why we're afraid of Michelle Obama and why we're scared of her because this was, you know, beyond Barack, Michelle was a kind of black woman we hadn't seen in real life beyond the Cosby show. Mm-hmm. And so this was a woman who was an attorney on her, in her own right, who was raising two children. And she was an anomaly. We didn't get to see 
African-American women such as Michelle, not only in our politics, but in the media. And so I think that they have opened up a new kind of look. And I think that's why we're so proud, because they have been smart and classy and beautiful. Yeah, impeccable. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that Toni Morrison is sorry that she called Bill Clinton the first black president now? <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Question. But I think it's a good question. You know, I don't. You know, I can't speak for Toni Morrison. I never liked that idea. I think that he did rally a huge African American population around him, but it always grated on my nerves that people would say that he's not black. And he's, he's not just, a great horn player. <laughs> well, <laughs> can, can he play? Um. <laughs> to go back to your to your film, uh, as we draw to a close, I, um, and that, and the question of that film, but but she, but can she play? Ah, yes. Uh, <laughs> we can see a little bit. You have a trailer up, don't you? Yes, for the film? it's on my on our Facebook page at But Can She Play? And I not only have a trailer of that; it's a work in progress. Real mm-hmm. is what it really is. And we also have some information on some new things that have developed with the Jazz at Lincoln Center, a rally that happened last year to help promote blind auditions to give women equal footing in opportunities to be a part of that band. Mm-hmm. That is now the new law of the land at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. So being able to follow that and, and having filmed that rally, that video's there and and so we have other videos of, of our artists on that page. So it's on our Facebook page at But Can She Play? And also check out Janice Littlejohn's uh, work on the LA Review of Books site. She's got some great pieces. The one we were just talking about is called Beyond Blackness and Whiteness. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for asking me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. I am delighted to introduce Evan Kindley, who is an old friend of ours. In fact, he was one of the first people who started LARB with Tom Lutz. We could call him employee number one if we had employees back then, but (laughs) we didn't. Uh, Helper number one. He is a senior editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books, which I think is a wonderful publication, and Mm -hmm. he teaches at Claremont McKenna College, and he has a new book out, which is absolutely fantastic. It's part of a series, which we will get into, but it's called Questionnaire, and it's put out by Bloomsbury, and thank you for being here, Evan. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you. And the series is short books mm. about specific kinds of objects. Is that right? Yeah, the series is called Object Lessons. They're short. I think it's twenty-five to 30,000 word books. Very a nice miniature trim size, pocket size books. It'd have to be a big pocket, but you could fit it in a pocket. <laughs> yeah, they've got several, at least two dozen of them so far. Different objects, including uh, remote control, Golf ball, driver's license. Some of them sort of take some liberties with the idea of object, like a hotel, dust, hair. But anyway, these short books, mine is questionnaire. Many of them written by academics, but not specifically for an academic audience. Sort of uh, something that I think uh, people outside of uh, the academy or specific scholarly areas would be interested in reading. It's very clean writing. It's just very elegant and very clean. It's a real pleasure to read, and it takes you to places you don't expect to go to, covers things you don't expect to be covered. It's wonderfully done. If all the books in the series are as good as this, then I'd say it's an excellent series. There are a lot of LA Review of Books writers in the list of yeah, there are, there are. I actually first heard of the series because of uh, the writer Ariana Kelly, who had written a piece for us that I edited a number of years ago about phone booths called The Phantom Phone Booth. And she expanded that into a book for the series. It was one of the early entries in the series called Phone Booth, naturally enough. I think that's what put it on my radar. And quite a few others, I think, people who've written for us have contributed to the series. Near the beginning of the book, you talk about an English scientist around the year 1870 named Francis Galton, mm-hmm. and you bring up the point that it's not what he was trying to assess or prove, which was pretty much the superiority of the white race, but it was how he was going about trying to find something out, which was using questionnaires. 
Galton, who actually is quite well known in the history of science, he's he's known really for two things primarily. He's known for pioneering statistics. I think he coined the term percentile and he sort of pioneered a lot of important techniques in statistics and then also known as the inventor, the father of eugenics as you were referring to before. It's not going too far, I think, to call it kind of a racist science. It's, uh, it's not going too far. No, <laughs> it's not. It's pretty much on the, the definition. It's pretty much on the money. Um, he wouldn't have thought of it in those terms, right. of course. But a science of a kind of biology that is oriented towards producing the best specimens, the best genetic specimens, and breeding human beings in the same way you'd breed animals. So, and this has a checkered history that we're all familiar with. It's, it was very popular in Nazi Germany, for instance. It also very popular. Not questionnaires. Uh, <laughs> they're questionnaires. Are you Jewish? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> yeah, it's the questionnaire. But eugenics was not something that I expected to have to deal with a lot or to think about a lot when I started writing this book. I was interested in various kinds of questionnaires. I was interested in quizzes, specifically the kind of sort of personality quizzes and internet quizzes that you see on sites like BuzzFeed. That was kind of my starting Which point. Which are so super popular now. Yes, yeah, hugely popular. So I started thinking about, about what the roots of this were and thinking about quizzes in women's magazines, things like this. And I kind of traced it back. The place that seemed like a, the right place to start was Galton, who was not quite the first person to use questionnaires for scientific purposes, but probably the first one to be really successful at it, the first one to really get a lot of people to respond to his questionnaires, the first person to really compile the data in a way that made some sense. So he does get sort of credit for pioneering the questionnaire as a scientific tool. Well, you say that there are some before that, but that the response rate would approach zero for most of them? Yeah, for, for pretty much the whole 18th and beginning of the 19th century, there were all these scientists, mostly natural scientists, trying to use questionnaires and just not getting anyone to um, to, <laughs> to return them. And it, it was kind of funny, too, because I would sort of have expected that that might be the case because people were suspicious or didn't want to reveal personal information. It's a little bit of that, but a lot of people just simply couldn't see the point of this at all. The idea of a questionnaire, I think that the idea of scientific data gathering wasn't established enough in people's minds that they would even bother to fill out one of these things. You trace how we got from there to where we are now, which is people loving to fill out questionnaires if it's going to tell them something possibly flattering about themselves. Sometimes there are people that just don't want to tell you anything about themselves, and then you meet somebody else, and they'll tell you everything about their history in five seconds. And maybe we're divided into those two camps. Right. I don't know. But also, as you point out, the people who wrote the questionnaires grew in their understanding of how to entice people to participate. Yeah, I was really interested insofar as I had questions, research questions starting out other than learning about questionnaires. I was interested in how these things became fun because it does seem like in the case of something like the BuzzFeed quiz, those are fun. There's no reason to take them. You're not getting anything out of them other than the joy of taking the quiz and maybe sharing the results with your friends. But then the questionnaire also has this sort of deserved reputation as being kind of a chore and being something you fill out only under duress or only because you're contributing to some scientific effort. So I was trying to kind of square the circle, figuring out at what point do these things become fun? Who's trying to make them fun? Why are they fun? Why do people enjoy them, et cetera? And thinking about those questions. To a certain extent, I think it's true that they've become more fun and that the designers of them have sort of deliberately made them more fun. They've worked on ways to make answering questionnaires less of a duty or a, um, a chore and more of a, a pleasure. And at BuzzFeed, they're masters of that. Those quizzes are genuinely fun to do. I took many of them in the course of uh, mm -hmm. my research. What, is, what kind of cat are you? <laughs> well, actually, the beginning of uh, one of your your chapter on Quizmania, you tell us what you've learned. I from gave the a quizzes. lot of my results. Yeah, right. I'm quite privileged. I should be a writer. I should live in Portland. Mm. I should go to Stanford. <laughs> yeah. I belong in the 1980s. If I were a dog, I'd be a lab. If I were a billionaire tycoon, I'd be George Soros. If I were a philosopher, I'd be Karl Marx. If I were yeah. a punk, I'd be uh, Patti Smith. Like St. Jude, I am fierce, kind, and cool as a cucumber. Right. If I were an element, I'd be carbon. It's just a very funny list, right? And, yeah. and so part of the pleasure is just the absurdity of the process. Absolutely. And I think in the case of the BuzzFeed quizzes, of course, no one takes them seriously. No one thinks these results are actually accurate or actually really telling themselves uh, much about themselves. And in some other cases, such as the Myers-Briggs tests, which are also incredibly popular, people do put stock in them and think, they're actually learning about something about themselves that they're 
INFP or whatever it is. You know, right, like the, the food that best matches my personality is spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and I think uh, one thing actually kind of brilliant thing that BuzzFeed has done and other internet quiz makers today is, is just highlighted the absurdity, highlighted the quasi-scientific aspect of these personality tests. They've never actually been particularly scientifically accurate. I mean, psychologists kind of gave up putting any stock in them in the, the 30s, basically. But nonetheless, the idea, the kind of uh, patina of science, it gives it a little bit of respectability, and then people just like the idea. Similar, I guess, to astrology, right? It's just like they like the idea that they're learning about themselves, even if they know it's probably not really. Well, what do you think the tipping point was in the progression from forms being a chore and also gave you that uncomfortable feeling of helping someone quantify you in a way you didn't want to be quantified to it's fun and it's like a cookie. It's going to just feel good for a minute. And, right. you know, what was the progression of that or the turning point of that? Yeah, it's a thing I kind of expected. I think I started out, I had Galton on one end and I had BuzzFeed on the other. And I kind of expected this would be a story of how this unfun thing became fun or how this uh, serious scientific thing got popularized and bastardized. I tell some of that story, but the other thing I found was that people actually were taking them for fun or filling out questionnaires for fun pretty much from the beginning or at least from the same time as Galton. So I, I was really fascinated to find that these things called confession albums, which uh, the most famous version, and I write about this in the book, is the, the Proust questionnaire, the questionnaire that Proust uh, filled out as a young, basically a teenager. But these were very popular in Victorian England. They were books with questions in them and blank lines for you to answer them. Things like, what is the qualities you most admire in a man and in a woman? Very kind of, not abstract, but very general questions about social life. And these were hugely popular, uh, first in England and then exported to Europe and to America. So from pretty early on, at least from the late 19th century, you have people taking these things for fun. Right. As you point out, which is a very charming part of the book, that people used it for courtship. So let's say you had a confessional. We were at a party and I gave it to you. And one of the questions was, you know, what do you look for in a woman? And like, you wrote back five, three, brown hair, like, and yeah. you know, whatever. And then I'd be, oh, he's flirting with me. So yes. the people used it, right, as you say, it became fun and it became for pleasure. Yeah, very much so. And it was very associated with women. I mean, these books were marketed towards women and it was thought of as sort of a feminine pursuit. You find a lot of references to them kind of slighting or mocking references by male authors. But on the other hand, men did take them. They took them at the homes of women. They took them to flirt and to sort of facilitate sociability. So in a certain way, they're not so different from the BuzzFeed quizzes and so forth that happen today. You know, taking a BuzzFeed quiz and sharing it on someone's wall, it's a certain kind of self-disclosure that is not really actually very revealing, but it, it kind of performs a ritual of revealing yourself to mm. someone else. Fantastic. So there's this whole fun part of the questionnaire, but there's also a kind of darker side to it, which you talk about in terms of intelligent testing, which is, you know, has a lot of different purposes, but some of them industrial, some of them part of the work environment. Mm. Yeah. Again, th things that I learned researching this, or I might have known about vaguely, but intelligence testing and personality testing, which are sort of related but different, right? Sort of gauging people's intelligence and uh, their mental abilities versus gauging what kind of person they are. Both of these things really get developed, get kind of uh, boosted by the First World War, where there was psychological testing kind of on a, on a vast scale for really the first time. So the Army Alpha tests, which I think are still pretty well-known tests of intelligence that were given to basically every recruit and used to kind of classify people according to mental ability, figuring out who was officer material, figuring out who was grunt material, that was designed by psychologists, uh, members of the American Psychological Association, specifically for the Army. And that really pushed psychological testing forward. Then after the war, you have a guy named Robert Woodworth designing a questionnaire to address the problem of shell shock, to kind of gauge people's mental health after they'd fought, right? Uh, to gauge uh, how disturbed people had been made by combat. So I think there is sort of a dark side, if you want to put it that way, the history of personality testing is very bound up with this kind of violence. Then after the war, it really starts to become big in industry, in businesses. A lot of the same uh, tests and the same techniques that had been used in the military are kind of adapted for use uh, in workplaces. They're mandatory tests that are given to workers, again, trying to sort them, trying to figure out which people might have radical pro-union tendencies. So, yeah, certainly I think starting... World War I, if not sooner, you have a real strong manipulation 
going along with all this. It's not just to learn about people, which Galton, for all the kind of disturbingness of his racial visions, he really did just want to gather information. But you start to have these large organizations trying to actually group people in categories and using tests as a means to that. What about the IQ test? Is that still considered, has it changed since the beginnings? Is that still considered a reliable test? I'm sure that it's changed. It's been updated a number of times. I'm not super up on this, but I think it is controversial, certainly, about they, how they, effective it is. They no longer ask whether you know who Christy Mathewson is, <laughs> right? Which is one of the one of the questions on the first Which one. Which I don't. Was it really? Who yeah. was it? Who he was, was it? He was a famous baseball player at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and one of the things about all these kinds of tests is they're almost never what they call culture blind, right? They, they almost always test for right. what you happen to know, what you've learned culturally, right? Right. Like, but, I like to ask people, do you know who Mary Martin was? That tells me a lot. Oh, I know. I know that. Very good. Yes, but I grew up in a <laughs> musical theater household. Yes, you did. <laughs> so, yeah, there's really multiple dark sides, at least certainly uh, multiple connections to various kinds of power that I think, you know, a lot of people are, um, are uneasy about. And, and actually, there was legislation to sort of curb the kinds of tests that employers could give to their workers at a certain point because it was seen as an invasion of privacy. And a lot of that happened in the 60s. Right. And of course, now we're in the, at the height of a new concern about the invasion of privacy with the way data mining is, right? Amazon is opening some brick and mortar stores mm-hmm. as a way, they say, to, they don't say, but the people are saying as a way to show retailers how they can tap into the kind of data that you can get from people online mm-hmm by bringing them into a store and making them hold their phone up to a product to find out what price it is. And that way, as soon as you do that, the people in the store know who you are and know whether they need to offer you a discount to get you to buy it and know all sorts of things about your age and income and everything else. The questionnaire, though, it seems to me that most of the information that are on these internet questionnaires are not used for that purpose exactly, right? They're clickbait, aren't they? Yes. And this was something that I sort of did my best to investigate. Companies like BuzzFeed are, as you'd expect, not very transparent about exactly what data they get from this and what they do with it. There has been a denial, specifically from BuzzFeed, that they use people's information linked to them, right? That they have any record of you personally, you know, you, Tom Lutz, logging Mm -hmm. on and saying that this is your favorite kind of cheese or whatever, that they keep that information and do anything with it. However, there's lots of other sort of intermediate things there that could be happening, including everybody's data being made anonymous and pooled and then still sold to a third party, right? right. And that sounds, maybe sounds okay, sounds harmless enough from the individual perspective, and it is, but, and sort of, this is really complex and hard to go into briefly, but it's, you know, there's stuff about it in the book. That information can then be sort of repackaged, resold it. In a way, there's sort of an analogy with debt, right? The debt can be sort of broken up and restructured and sold. And that can be used to construct categories that can that can determine who gets uh, credit card offers, who sees specific kinds of advertising. The data can definitely be used for some purposes that may not be purposes you've signed up for by taking a quiz. So all that is uh, pretty mysterious, in part because companies are not at all upfront about what they're actually doing. And there is starting to be investigation. There's been sort of congressional hearings about this. But because it's such a new industry and because it's so unclear what the actual risks are at this point, there hasn't been a, a whole lot of public outreach we should about se- it. We should send them all a questionnaire. What, <laughs> yes. what is your favorite cheese? Is it craft individually packaged <laughs> well, slices I do of feel cheddar? Like, I do feel like we've realized now why, why I keep getting all those cheese flyers in the <laughs> Well, um, and, and ads, I've noticed the ads I see changing based on quizzes I took. When I was taking a lot of quizzes for the book, I would see I would see Google serving me different ads or, or whatever. So oh, yeah. it, I think there's something happening there. There's something happening. Like, Google puts up ads for things I didn't even know Google knew I was considering buying. That's really it's, it's weird. Creepy. It's yeah. creepy. On the other hand, I am still getting ads for kitchen cabinets what? from when I, last time I put in a new kitchen cabinet mm-hmm. seven years ago the kind of level of ineptitude in some of this stuff is is reassuring. It's not an exact science, and it's almost all algorithms, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the thing that it's not people. It's not, uh, you know, conspiratorial figures anywhere doing this. It's, it's robots, and the robots are often not very smart and not very good at tracking you. So that, in a way, is reassuring, right, that they haven't gotten to the point where they can really track you very well. Yet. Another yeah. thing you bring up is the irony that Proust would probably not approve of the Proust questionnaire, that he thought that authors 
the personal lives of authors should be off limits and that, you know, readers don't need to know about the personal lives of authors, which is an interesting question. Yeah. You said the literary critic, Contre Saint-Beuve, who said that one cannot be certain of having a complete grasp of a writer without detailed biographical information. Yeah. And I find that interesting because I do think that it is helpful to know something about a writer. I think of it as like a blind taste test of wine. Like if you mm. don't know the color and the temperature is exactly the same, a lot of people cannot tell red from white wine. Yeah. And I think that what we know about an author does imbue our reading, and which is not necessarily a bad thing. I think that Proust, like most authors, just wanted their privacy. He didn't want people to know how he felt about his—well, he didn't mind if people knew how he felt about his mother, but— right. You know, he didn't want people to know the depth of his own neurosis, even though he was so exposed in his art. Sure. And famously, also, he was he was gay. And that was something that he might not want a lot of people to know. A friend pointed out to me when they read this chapter that uh, Proust was actually very inconsistent in, in holding this this view. I mean, not only did he sort of fill out these questionnaires and so forth. I mean, his novels, basically autobiographical, you know, it's sort of thinly veiled autobiography. He's sort of hardly the poster child for an author who reveals nothing of himself and doesn't <laughs> doesn't want his life, personal life. And certainly lots of um, critics have dug through his biography and learned a lot about him and his book from that. But nonetheless, yeah, I thought it was kind of ironic that the Proust questionnaire, which, you know, wasn't uh, in Proust's lifetime, wasn't something anybody talked about. It was basically this confession album that had been discovered after his death and published and took on a certain fame because his answers were so... Uh, you know, they were pretty extraordinary. They were Proustian. They were very Proustian. Yeah, they they sound just like Proust, right? So it, it became known as the Proust Questionnaire, and I sort of trace how it became known and how it ended up in places like Vanity Fair and inside the actor's studio and all these kind of, you know, funny sort of middle-brow contexts. Yeah, Proust, I think, would have found that a little mortifying because in his time, he did put forward this idea not that far away from sort of what T.S. Eliot talked about, sort of the impersonality of the writer, right? He liked the idea that the personal biography of the writer was irrelevant to what the, the writer wrote. Basically, the idea that we would uh, be using this questionnaire with it bears his name to learn more and more about celebrities he might have found distasteful. I was a little disappointed, frankly, that you didn't talk about the LARB questionnaire. As, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I helped book, write. Which you did help write. It all comes full circle. <laughs> but this gives you an idea of how fascinating this book is and how many subjects it touches. So thank you, Evan, so much for coming. Thank you for having me. The book is Questionnaire. The author's Evan Kindley. It's out from Bloomsbury. Buy it immediately. You have been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We want to thank Ernesto Orleano, our engineer, Alan Minsky, producer and moral center, Jim Lane, executive producer, Mary Alexa Cavanaugh, our brilliant scheduling person, and Emerson College for letting us use its beautiful facilities in the heart of Hollywood. I'm Laurie Weiner. For Tom Lutz, this has been the LARB Radio Hour.